Coming up today, the rise and rise of astrology apps, and we delve deep into the controversies surrounding India's faltering vaccine drive. You're listening to the Wired UK podcast, your essential weekly guide to all the big stories in tech, science, business and culture. I'm your host, James Temperton, and joining me this week are Amit Katwala. Hello. And Natasha Banal. Hello. This was the week when Microsoft President Brad Smith warned that life as depicted in George Orwell's 1984 could come to pass in 2024 if lawmakers don't protect the public against artificial intelligence. This is the same Microsoft that has been working on emotion detection systems to improve the effectiveness of video conferencing tech. Uber agreed to a groundbreaking deal with Union GMB this week, marking the first time that the ride-hailing company has recognised a union representing its drivers anywhere in the world. And finally, this was the week when Amazon paid more than $8 billion for MGM Studios, the owner of James Bond and other iconic movie franchises. It's Amazon's second largest purchase ever, after the $13.7 billion it paid for Whole Foods. So we got it completely wrong. A few months ago, we published a story saying that Netflix would never buy MGM Studios. So we were right that, that Netflix wouldn't, but Amazon just went and did it anyway. Yes, our argument was that James Bond would never appear on Netflix because of the economics of, of streaming that would make it impossible for them to finance such an expensive film. And now James Bond isn't actually going to appear on Netflix, but not because of that. Well, partly because of that, but partly because it's now owned by one of Netflix's direct competitors in the streaming wars. But it's unlikely that James Bond is going to go straight to Amazon Prime, right? There's still a need for a film franchise that's this huge to premiere in cinemas, surely. Yeah, I think so. I think this play is more about Amazon building out its content library and and kind of in the face of things like Disney Plus, like Disney Plus's big strength is it's got this huge back catalogue of great stuff to draw on made over decades. Whereas the problem Amazon and Netflix has is that they're reliant on licensing deals for those things, which is the most expensive part of operating a streaming business. What Netflix has done over the last five or 10 years is realised that it can invest in its own content and actually it's cheaper in the long run because... Although these shows cost loads to make initially, they own the rights to them forever. Amazon Prime has been doing the same. And this is kind of a shortcut to the sort of Disney-like scale of depth of good content. So, you know, $8 billion is is steep, but actually it might pay off in the long run. And what it also allows us to do is to revisit your lion fact from last week, Amit. The MGM Raw. You went and did some homework. Yeah, that's right. So we were talking about the uh, artificial... Uh, the sounds used to re- re- recreate Mufasa's roar in The Lion King, and I was asked whether the MGM lion, uh, the famous roar that uh, appears at the start of MGM films, was real or not. It is a real lion. Actually, it's a composite of several different lions, which is what I discovered after sifting through about 5,000 words about the lion's roar on Wikipedia. Uh, this composite roar was made in 1995 out of three previous recordings of previous MGM lions. There have been eight MGM lions in total over the years, although the latest one, who was called Leo, has held the role since 1957. Uh, a, a listener tweeted in, Daryl tweeted in me to say that the first MGM lion was actually born in Dublin Zoo 102 years ago last Sunday. So a bit of uh, poetry for you there. That is way more homework than I expected you to do and a much more interesting story than I expected you to find. So thank you so much for that, Amit. What did you learn this week? Anything that can top all that other than that? 
I learned that it takes 2,700 litres of water to make a cotton shirt, which is enough water for one person to drink for 900 days. So, uh, yeah, this is the fast fashion problem, isn't it? And the fact that we're consuming all these resources to make clothes and then not wearing them for very long. I'd like to say that this is the reason why I've worn essentially the same three outfits for the last year, um, but it's probably not. Uh, Natasha, what did you learn this week? <laughs> well, uh, we all got our coronavirus vaccines this week, us three, um, and it was great. It took no time at all, just a quick jab in the arm. But I found out this week that before the first vaccination in 1796, people had to resort to more disgusting ways of trying to inoculate themselves against one of the most prevalent diseases of the time, which was smallpox. Uh, what they did was a thing called variolation, which involved subcutaneous injection or inhalation of material from smallpox, po- smallpox pustules. I can't even say that. Say it three times fast. Smallpox pustules, such as pus or dried scabs. So you just sort of sniff a scab and hope for the best. But that could go really wrong because you could just get infected by normal smallpox and cause an epidemic. So a bit of a riskier business. Do you think they were having the same debates that they have, we're having now back then? You know, how we're like, I'd rather have Pfizer than AstraZeneca or Moderna than Pfizer or whatever. Do you think they were like, oh, give me the pus, I don't want the dried scabs, I'll take the pus, please. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know what's worse. The sort of the idea of smearing some pus on yourself or like sniffing a scab or, you know, I, like the whole thing just sounds so disgusting. Um, but, you know, it's a great it was a great equaliser, that sort of disease. I think it's George II's um, child died because of smallpox. I have to maybe check that one. But, um, but yeah, basically some some famous people may have inhaled a rogue scab that caused them to die. So... Yeah. Pus or scabs podcast at wired.co.uk <laughs> with your preference to let us know. Our first story this week is about horoscopes. That's right. So horoscopes have been absolutely booming in lockdown. In 2019, US consumers spent $40 million on the top 10 psychic, psychic services apps, nearly double the previous year. And now it's gotten even bigger. Amit, you've been looking into this. Yeah, so it's not just horoscopes, it's things like calling up a psychic for advice on your love life or, you know, getting them to do a, a, a reading of the stars to tell you how to, you know, make a particular decision. But what's really interesting is not only have they been growing loads during the pandemic, they're also attracting a new demographic. Men are now calling in in droves to these services, using these apps, visiting these websites. For some of the sites, they make up the fastest growing demographics. We spoke to... Uh, number of kind of psychics and astrologers for this piece who confirm that yeah men are calling in in droves on horoscope.com the percentage of male customers has increased from 32 percent in 2019 to 43 percent in 2021 okay cupid uh, did an internal survey and they found that the number of men who believe that complementary horoscope signs are important for a good match increased by 60 percent in the last three years and yeah it's an interesting trend. So lots more psychic and astrologers that we spoke to are reporting this uptick in male customers. It's so interesting that people care about horoscope and, and psychic services when it comes to their love lives, right? I would have never thought that people believe that they're not destined to be with someone else because one of them is like a water sign or an earth sign or something. I, I wonder, do you think this is something to do with boredom or whether the uncertainty of the global pandemic has sort of made us turn to start reading again to see what the future holds? Is, is this something that is just typical of this time, Amit? Yeah, I think these things are quite interesting. Obviously, my general instinct is to roll my eyes at uh, anyone that believes in this stuff because obviously <laughs> it's completely unscientific and, and total nonsense. I did a um, 
I, I typed in mine and my partner's like uh, dates of birth to see whether we would be a good match according to star signs and we got like a 15 percent match or something like that we're not compatible Ooh. in any way according <laughs> to our star signs but we've been together for like 12 years so it's <laughs> you know either we're wrong or the, you know the stars are wrong um but basically there's been anecdotal evidence in the past at moments of communal anxiety have led to kind of an increased interest in the paranormal so you know when things are confusing and scary you look to things like astrology for reassurance and control uh one of the astrologers we spoke to dates the shift back to 2016 you know as we all know the year the world started going slightly off the rails you know politics went a bit mad media got even more frenzied and the pandemic has just turbocharged that feeling sean foley who's uh from Ingenio, which owns a bunch of these psychic websites, says that COVID has particularly opened the door to men. Um, that's been exacerbated by the pandemic because the traditional tools that you know men might use to negotiate stress, and women as well, to be fair, but maybe these things are more associated with men, such as playing sport, have been curtailed by lockdowns. Uh, we spoke to Paul Mollett, a London-based therapist uh, from the British Association for Counselling and Psychotherapy. He says that his male clients have particularly struggled men tend to get more severe infections and they die at a greater rate of COVID than women. Um, and, you know, that could be playing a role here. But Ronald Levant, who's a psychology professor and the former head of the American Psychological Association, attributes the rise of interest in psychic services to a more sinister trend. He says that there's basically been an increase in belief in improbable things. You know, he took points to QAnon, to the anti-vax trend. He says there's been an assault on truth and evidence and that this is why people are kind of turning to astrology and to psychics because of this assault on truth. A 2020 study from the University of Delaware found that men are more likely to endorse COVID-19 conspiracies, for instance, and OkCupid found that users who considered astrology a a legitimate science, the percentage of men who said yes to that question has increased by 20% in the past three years. So there is clearly something going on with men and their relationship with the truth that's driving them towards psychics and astrologers. It's so interesting because there's two things going on here, right? You've got the the rise of such wild theories going on right now that it's meant that some of the things that you read in horoscopes seem almost more plausible than the truth. And also you've got the rise of, of men using these services which is super interesting and what you said earlier about almost 50 percent of of men making up an entire customer base it is strange though because for a long time astrology and other psychic services have kind of been considered largely female pursuits right the preserve of women's magazines the back of the paper sparkly apps in like varying shades of pink um how are these companies changing what they offer to more specifically target that that demographic of men that's growing in interest? Yeah, so from the companies that we spoke to, I I don't think that they, you know, they set out to attract men, but when they noticed that they were drawing more men in, they definitely leaned into the demographic. So uh, Sean Foley, who we spoke to, decided to target them in online marketing drives on two of his sites, uh, and it, it worked. He said that in the last year, the percentage of men has quadrupled. Uh, there's an app called CoStar, which is pretty popular, and it, rather than that kind of pink sparkly design that you mentioned, Natasha, it takes a much more kind of scientific looking, gender neutral design. It's all brushed metal and silver. And it, it says it uses NASA data for its charts and, you know, AI to interpret the the, the kind of findings of a team of astrologers. Um, it says that the percentage of men on its app has been shifting steadily towards 30% and it's made loads of money. So its revenue is more than tripled between 2019 and 2020. And it started, a lot of these apps use 
gender neutral language now to partly to make the predictions that these horoscopes are making less specific but also to cater to a generation that's moving away from these rigid gender categories it's interesting that you mentioned money because these companies are making a lot of it and we, we do focus a lot on sort of conspiracy theories and the way they're impacting people's lives online but in this sense you've got companies who are making a massive amount of profit off of well, sort of made up things, right? They'll read the stars. There's no science behind it. There's no guarantee they'll be right. And they're telling that information to people who are then making life decisions off the back of them, right? So a lot of people might see this as a bit of fun, but for vulnerable people, especially those who are making investments right now, this could be pretty dangerous, right? I'm not just talking about the decisions that are made after the advice is given, which could be based off of completely false information, but also the amount of money they're spending on the advice itself to begin with so in in this story we wrote that someone was being that was charging 38 dollars a minute to give love advice that could bankrupt a person just just sitting on the phone and listening to the advice could be enough to kind of send people in a downward spiral right yeah so we spoke to one um kind of psychic i guess that we, you would call her on on keen.com which is another kind of platform that links customers and, and, and psychics for voice calls and she says that she has customers who can spend tens of thousands of dollars a year calling her which you know and if, if you're i think a lot of the time it's you know lonely men who are looking for advice on you know relationships or just looking for someone to talk to um ingenio says that it sets spending limits for new customers to try and you know counteract these things and create a self-regulating mechanism but it's a bit like a gambling addict online you know if they're not going to use one service and they'll just move to another one the psychologists we spoke to are really worried about these relationships and the influence that psychics and astrologers can exert. You know, it's this financial relationship and they're putting themselves in a position of, of power and strength and they're saying that they have answers to questions, they have the, you know, the solution to all the confusion that we're living through. But actually, you know, they're just essentially taking a lot of money from these men who are in pretty vulnerable positions already. Mollet, the psychologist we spoke to, worries that isolated men may be more vulnerable to these unhealthy attachments. They crave intimacy, but they're more susceptible, he says, to be being taken down the wrong path. And I think that's maybe one of the reasons why we've seen this rise of males using psychics and astrologers online. Mm -hmm. So, Amit, I've got two questions for you. Number one, do you believe in horoscopes and astrology in general? I do not. Do you want to know what your horoscope says today, which might change your mind. Always. Yeah, please, please let me know. <laughs> All right, so I've scoured the web for the most interesting of the predictions, which there are many, and I found one in the Hindustan Times for you. And it says, uh, obviously, Amit is a cancer, uh, by the way. So not a, like he's, his, star, wow. his star sign is, <laughs> is cancer. <laughs> oh, dear. Um, so his star sign is cancer, which means that he was born between June 22nd and July 22nd. Uh, it says recruitment agents will have to get a bigger bait to catch the bigger fish. Health foods help to some extent, but regular home fare remains essential. Enjoying a ride with friends is possible for some. If you want to hurry up an assignment, remain extra careful. Some unsaid words may linger in your mind much after someone close has left. Your request for a raise may not get a definite reply. And you've got your love focus, which is hectic schedule at work, may not give you time to meet your lover. So it looks like it's written by an algorithm. It could have been written by an algorithm for all we know. But yeah, you um, will have no time to meet your lover. Make yourself a meal. And no one wants to give you a raise. 
how, how accurate yeah. do you think I mean, that, that is? I mean, that does sound pretty accurate. Uh, <laughs> and I do have a hectic schedule at work, although, you know, I have been trapped in the house for 14 months. So there's, <laughs> the lack of time is not the issue, I don't think, in terms of the relationship. <laughs> but no, I think it's, it's interesting how vague the language is. And, you know, as mm. we said earlier, I think some of these companies are realizing that if they tweak that language a bit to be a bit more gender neutral, they can kind of target a broader range of people than the traditional people that are into horoscopes. I wanted to pick up on um, something that was raised right at the beginning, the the increased belief in conspiracy theories like QAnon and anti-vax is driving people towards these sort of belief systems, I guess, whereas previously they, they would have thought that it isn't for them. And then it's, it's obvious, right, that the industry would identify a new stream of revenue and adapt accordingly. So if that's changing the kind of language that's in horoscopes or changing the kinds of services that are on offer or the design of the apps, new products coming up. Um, so it's 100% what you expect any industry to do, but it's mm-hmm. problematic because, as we said, these people are vulnerable, potentially. One thing that's really interesting is the kinds of companies, the kinds of funds they're investing in these companies and the other things they're investing in. So it's attracting a lot of people that have invested in, in you know, mindfulness apps and things like that. So... And some of these countries have got companies have got you know valuations of hundreds of millions of dollars, uh, and some people in the VC space have been quite critical of others for investing in these apps. But essentially, as we said, you know they're making tens of thousands of dollars a year off of particular customers based on on this belief system, which obviously isn't true. I think it's also worth noting that although this seems like huge business now, it always has been. So there's always been sort of television channels that've been dedicated to you know astrology and, and reading the stars and what your future holds. You know, there's been sections in most newspapers dedicated to it, and there's a reason for it. People love it. Um, it's it's not so much because they take it seriously; it's more because they see it as something fun or they see it as something that sort of helps them along the way. I mean, I think it's it's, it's really interesting that. You know, you've got a new demographic of people who are interested in it, which makes it exciting and new. And if it's, it's rising in the pandemic, that's that could be problematic. Um, but it, it just shows that it always appeals, which is a weird thing. It's sort of this um, you think that it would be something that would go out of fashion after a while because people would know better. But no. Here we are. Yeah, I, I think so. I don't want to. I don't want to. You know, I think you're right. I think it can be a lot of fun, and I wouldn't want to attack people that believe in it or cast aspersions on them for enjoying, you know, reading the horoscope in the newspaper. I think what I would do is draw the comparison with gambling again. You know, 50 years ago, gambling was something that you did, you know, once a year because the Grand National was on, and you walked to the bookies and you placed a bet. But the internet puts it in your pocket. Smartphones put it in your hand all the time, 24 hours a day, and it's not. Uh, conscious choice to be like oh I'm going to have a bet on the Grand National today or I'm going to check my horoscope it's push notifications it's algorithms it's tailored to you it's driving you to spend more and more and more and more it wants you to be on the app constantly and I think when people are vulnerable that can be really dangerous podcast.wired.co.uk if if you've fallen in love with horoscopes during the pandemic or sought out help from different sources. It would be interesting to hear how people have been experiencing this. Podcast at wired.co.uk if you want to share anything from your lives. Our second story this week is about the impact the pandemic is having on India and how technical solutions to vaccinating more than a billion people are seemingly creating more problems than they are solving. 
India has recorded 26 million cases of COVID-19, putting it second only to the United States in terms of total cases. The second wave has overwhelmed the healthcare system. We've all seen pictures and heard stories of hospitals that are completely overwhelmed and an almost total lack of critical drugs and oxygen. Thousands of people are dying each day. Up against that wave of suffering is India's faltering vaccination drive. To date, India has administered 200 million doses of a COVID-19 vaccination. That's around 43.5 million people who have been fully vaccinated. So in total, just 11% of people in India have had a vaccine dose and only 3.1% of Indians are fully vaccinated. In the race between the vaccine and the virus, one that will likely continue to play out across the world for several years in India, the virus is still winning. Part of the problem that India faces is this almost unrivaled logistical challenge of getting the vaccine to its population, physically getting it into their arms. It's a massive country with a huge population, with a huge disparity in the quality of healthcare, the level of technology, the level of infrastructure between cities, between rural areas. And that's been having a big impact on India's vaccination drive, right? It's hugely complicated. So this week we spoke to a number of people on the ground in India who have taken matters into their own hands in an attempt to get themselves and their friends and families vaccinated. But before we hear their stories, it's worth explaining how India's vaccination system works. So in a bid to speed up vaccine delivery, the Indian government opened up the API. This is essentially the database behind the scenes that powers CoWin, which is its vaccine platform. And this allows people to create tools and automate the search for available vaccine slots. So as with many countries in India, to get a COVID vaccine, you have to register with an official system. You have to provide some personal details. Then you get entered into the system and you can go and get your vaccination. Now, India's system is slightly controversial and complicated. And as you might imagine, the huge demand for vaccinations in India has led to a rise in vaccination booking bots and scams with people being charged quite significant sums of money to jump the queue or just get into the queue in the first place and get a jab. The end result is it's become pretty much impossible for many people to get vaccinated. Uh, Opening up the API to me seems like a really, really risky strategy because it almost confers an air of legitimacy onto these these random websites and apps you know if there's no way for a random app that you go on to access the data that actually drives the vaccination program then you can be pretty sure that it's not a scam that it is a scam sorry whereas now there's apps floating around or websites floating around with real vaccine data so what sort of scams are we talking about here is it fake vaccine slots are people being asked to pay huge sums of money for access to something that is you know by rights free Yeah, it's a little bit of everything. As you're saying, one of the problems of opening something up is it makes it very difficult to tell what's legit and what's not because there are so many different options out there. But the fundamental problem here is that India, like a lot of countries, requires that people register to book a vaccine slot. Now, that's fine if you've got enough slots and you've got enough vaccines to meet demand. But when you don't, the whole system kind of teeters on the verge of collapse. So we spoke to Namisha Naranjan, who's a 22-year-old who works in the hospital sector in Bangalore. And she explained how earlier this month she stumbled upon an Instagram post with details of how to get a vaccination. The post included a WhatsApp number that people could message to get a slot. So she sends off a message and immediately gets a response. The person she's messaging says that they could get her a slot almost right away, but it would cost her 3,000 rupees, which is about £29. When they asked her to send the money and some personal details that are required to access the vaccine slot booking system, she walked away. So Namisha had stumbled upon one of dozens of automated or hundreds, thousands of automated vaccine booking services built on top 
of the co-win system to snap up slots as soon as they become available. This has been a bit of a nightmare because India is not a country where everyone's got access to a smartphone or everyone's got high levels of digital literacy and there's hugely unequal levels of access to the internet in the first place. So creating this vaccine system that requires access to the internet, combining that with vaccine shortages has created basically chaos. So now what you've got is profiteers using bots and writing code to book vaccine slots and charging people to do so. But by definition, the people that can't access slots themselves are the people who don't have that much money. So essentially what's happened is the chances of getting a vaccine have been tilted massively in favour of the rich, in favour of the educated and in favour of the tech savvy. And it doesn't help that the actual system and underlying it, you know, kind of has problems anyway. It's complicated and it's been controversial as well. Yeah, that's absolutely right. So to register, as I kind of said earlier, people need to enter a phone number um, and some other details and wait for a one-time password to be sent back to them by text message to be able to log in and check for available slots. Now, as anyone that's ever used a system that requires one-time passwords might know, those passwords sometimes don't turn up or can take a really long time. And with the system being so overwhelmed, there are lots of instances where one-time passwords don't arrive. Users have 15 minutes to get them. They don't get them and they're automatically logged out. That's a problem. What's more, because the system is so reliant on people having internet access, um, having internet access and digital literacy, it excludes huge swathes of India's population. So up until fairly recently, it wasn't possible to just walk into a clinic or to book a vaccine slot in a different way. The system just isn't built to cope with the kind of demand that you've got. The best way to think about it is that as a human being sitting down trying to get a vaccine, you can only go as fast as a human being. But there are bots that are built that are competing with you on the system who can move faster than the speed of light and they can book more slots than human beings can because they've been coded to trick the system into giving them greater access. So it's a real mess and there doesn't seem to be a way to fix it. It's like they saw the system the difficulties people were having like buying a ps5 or the latest pair of trainers and they were like that's how we want to distribute our vaccine <laughs> and it's being abused on a massive scale right a quick search for co-win which is the name of the vaccine program on github which is basically a repository for snippets of code that programmers can use returns more than 1700 results and a lot of the systems that are being built to help people secure vaccine slots are making a lot of money it gets worse than that. So the number of slots available is so low and the bots are so fast that it, it is pretty much impossible now for people to log in and book a slot by themselves. And the coincid system simply isn't robust enough to keep these bots at bay. So one thing authorities did was they added captures. So those annoying image puzzles where you have to see all the cars, recognise all the cars in an image or pedestrian crossings or traffic lights. Um, so it started using captures to try and filter out bots, but the people running the bots simply added off-the-shelf capture-solving tech or turned to machine learning models to dodge the checks. And these are successful up to an over 90% of the time, so that wasn't too much of a hindrance. So once such a bot was able to... One, one, one bot, bot um, that we looked into was able to book 15 slots over the course of a single weekend, which might not sound like that many, but when you multiply that success rate over many thousands potentially of bots and their ability to book them within seconds of them appearing and you start to get an idea of how problematic this is. Is anyone actually doing anything to help or is this just all scammers or has opening up the API actually had the uh, effect that the government had initially intended when it did it? Have anyone Has anyone built a free, genuinely useful tool to help people book a vaccine? Yeah, so what we've been talking about so far has been 
perhaps unintended consequences of the government trying to do the right thing. So we've seen versions of vaccine bots in all sorts of countries in the US. There have been various social media accounts that automatically tweet out when there is supply of vaccines in certain locations so people can get out there, get them booked and get the jab in their arm. The same is true in India. So on Telegram, for example, there are hundreds of channels with tens of thousands of members. And those mem and those people are getting alerts from an automated system to tell them when vaccines are becoming available in the local area. So we spoke to Bertie Thomas, a programmer in the South Indian city of Chennai. Bertie wasn't able to book a vaccine slot for himself. So as you might expect a programmer to do, he wrote a script that queried the Cohen API to let him know when slots were available in his area. When it worked, he decided to share it with his friends and his family, and then he started getting, as you might expect, lots and lots of messages. He said that he saw that people were coming and refreshing and checking for slots over and over again. So instead of people doing that, he thought it would be better if he could use the same script to check regularly over the day. And um, whenever a slot is available, an alert is sent by telegram as a message so his website under 45.in lets people select where they live and then adds them to a relevant telegram group and that then shares updates on vaccine availability as of may 26th thomas's tool was being used by over 2.3 million people across 614 telegram groups he's now working on adding smaller cities and towns to ensure that more people have a chance to get a jab. So one of the issues in India, and this is something that we've seen here in the UK as well, is that people have found out where slots aren't being taken up. And this is often in smaller cities and in rural areas, and they're traveling quite significant distances to get to vaccination centers where they've got a better chance of getting a jab. And that's an example of people who are tech savvy and do have the wherewithal and the time to go and get a COVID vaccine jumping the queue ahead of people in the local area who might not feel like they can get access. So he says that the concept of the platform is it requires people to have the internet and a smartphone to book a slot. But he's been told of lots and lots of people who are using these telegram alerts to book slots for other people who don't have access. So he's going to continue adding smaller cities to try and ensure that when there is capacity, that the people that really need it can get it. But Again, this is people taking matters into their own hands. I guess the fundamental problem here is still vaccine supply. You know, he's got 2.3 million users on his Telegram groups, but that's what one, you know, it's a tiny drop in the ocean compared to 1.3 billion people that India's got to vaccinate. No amount of bots, you know, whether they're scamming or well-intentioned, are going to solve the problem of more than a billion people who need vaccinating and they're not being anywhere enough, anywhere near enough vaccines to actually put in their arms. And that's what this story is about, really, right? It's a classic case of supply and demand, which has been accelerated by the pandemic. And Lord knows we've seen enough examples of that over the last 15 months or so. So the Cohen system is by no means perfect. In fact, it's, it's flawed in lots of ways to do with data privacy um, and overreach in terms of personal information. But the issue with bots and scams is being caused by a chronic shortage of vaccinations in India. So Thomas says that his Bangalore Telegram group has more than 80,000 members, but slots only open up for about two to 300 vaccines each day. Namisha, who we heard from right at the start of the story, is part of that very same Telegram group in Bangalore. And she gets hopeful every single time her phone lights up with a Telegram notification. She told us that She's able to see the slots that have actually become available, but she's never able to get one. And for now, she says, she's given up hope. 
it won't have escaped you know you'll notice the irony that india is actually where a lot of vaccines that are being shipped out globally are being made but is this a problem that can be solved what what's india doing wrong that other countries have done right and how can this problem be fixed for for one it needs more vaccine supply and this is the, the fundamental problem you can blame poor technology and that's certainly playing a role here but there is such huge demand that any technical system that you build is likely to come under unprecedented pressure under those circumstances but let's assume that there was enough supply what does a good technical system look like to distribute the vaccine effectively to a large population the nhs let's take a look at that it's pretty close to home right you can register for a jab online or on the phone and there are also a bunch of clinics where you can just walk in off the street and get a jab and those clinics are very often hosted in sites of religious worship and targeted towards communities where vaccine take-up has been lower or where people might not have such a positive relationship with the health service due to decades of discrimination You only have to supply your name and your NHS number to register online or by the phone. And if you're walking in off the street, you just pretty much walk in off the street. It's quick. It's easy. And there are plenty of vaccine doses to go around. Right. That's the key point we keep on coming back to. No mess, no fuss. And it's similar in the US. Right. You can pretty much walk into the door of thousands of pharmacies up and down the United States and get a vaccine job done. But India has seemingly built an overly complex system for vaccination vaccination booking and that's rubbing up against really really low supply levels so in recent weeks it started opening up some walk-in vaccination clinics and made it easier for people to register for a vaccine without needing internet access but this is a classic case of using technology to create more problems than it's able to solve so we spoke to anushka jane an associate counsel with the internet freedom foundation which is a digital rights organization who does a pretty good job of laying out the various flaws in india's system so she says there are people who aren't fluent in english who don't know how these systems work who don't know how one-time passwords or capture codes work and then there are people who don't even have internet access Add to that the bot problems, and for many people, booking a vaccine becomes impossible. Even if someone knows how to book, they're unable to, because the slots are snatched up as soon as they appear. So, in short, it's a complete mess. If you're listening from India, we'd love to know how you're getting on tracking down a vaccination and what your experience has been with this system. Let us know your thoughts on this story or anything else that we talked about on the show this week. It's podcast at wired.co.uk time for a couple of your emails before we finish the show this week mike writes in from ottawa in canada he says i was just listening to the podcast this is last week's episode i think while exercising as usual when the topic of rebranding came up i was curious about where you would go with this and was amused when matt said he would rebrand with his gym spelling error if you didn't listen to the show that this refers to then none of this will make sense but never mind next came natasha's declaration to become matasha which caused me to giggle in amusement lastly the danger really arrived when james said he would rebrand as an odor this caused me to laugh out loud and because i was getting to the end of a bench press uh set i nearly dropped the bar on myself even now i still giggle when thinking of james rebranding as a scent (laughs) thank you for a great laugh i always enjoy your shows and learn from them but this one was really great glad you uh, enjoyed the show mike and uh, hopefully we keep bringing a smile to your face (laughs) amit uh we've got one more email this week I think I missed that episode as well, so I had absolutely no idea what you're talking about. I have to go back and listen to it. Go, go back. It's I have. To, it's one of the best. It was you know? great. It was great. We actually had to do that section over again, Mike. If you're still listening, 
because I was laughing so hard, I was snorting. It was horrendous. I think you actually said what the smell of the scent was going to be, right, James? You said it was going to smell... It was the smell of success, There I think. we go. <laughs> Why not? Uh, anyway, moving swiftly on, Amit, one yes, more email this week. We do, yeah. So Clark and Catherine got in touch all the way from New Zealand with a friendly Kia Aura. They said they've been enjoying the Wired podcast over the past year uh, as a great window to how the wider world is changing while New Zealand stays perfectly normal, which is uh, slightly hard to hear. Um, they write in <laughs> about the uh, fact last week about the lion's roar, which we talked about at the top of the episode uh, and they point out that it's not unique to a lion, but it's actually quite common for sounds in nature documentaries to be replaced by sounds that you know are different. So if you ever hear elephant feet rumbling on the ground in a video of elephants, it's not an authentic noise because elephants are actually quite soft-footed and they don't generate no noise when they walk. So that scene in the Jungle Book, huge lie, apparently. Um, the sound is often manufactured because the audience isn't convinced by the footage if the sound isn't there. They use elephant feet as an analogy flowing around in their household when they see a real-world comparison to giving people what they want to hear or justifying doing something the wrong way because it's what people kind of want, which I think is a really, really interesting uh, turn of phrase, and I quite like it. I might borrow it. This is outrageous, um, and it kind of leaves a lot of detail to be desired. But what, what do they use instead of elephant feet? How do you how do you make the sound of, of inauthentic elephant feet? Do you take, like, 50 rhinos or 200 horses? Do you remember when my shelf collapsed when we were recording the podcast and it made that sort of <laughs> cacophony? <laughs> that would be the sound that they use for elephants. I see. So it's the, it's the sound of a floating shelf with some glassware collapsing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, do get back in touch, Clark and Catherine, um, to fill us in on what they replace the sounds of elephants with or what they... Um, augment the sound of elephants with i imagine it's just a, a bunch of feet but it would be good to know thanks very much for your email and to everybody that got in touch this week we'll be back again same time next week have a good one take care Bye-bye. bye bye bye